Okay, we are still in the book of James. Uh, we're in our faith series, which is over the epistle or letter of James, the uh, half-brother of Jesus. Uh, and James wrote this letter to believing Jews uh, who are scattered throughout uh, Palestine. And these Jews are being heavily persecuted. They were uh, enduring all these trials and all these temptations. And so James wrote them this letter to encourage them to stand strong in their faith. Now, uh, like we've been studying through a really cool part of James uh, about faith and about living faith. So uh, James made a really bold statement uh, in chapter 2 that I want to kind of break away from James to unpack. And we've been uh, breaking away for this will be our second week. But he says in James 2.20, But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is what? Useless. Uh, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? You see that faith was working uh, with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers uh, and sent them out by another way? Uh, For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Now, this was a very bold statement because the crux of this statement is these three amazing examples of faith. That's that's the crux of the statement, right? Now, the first two examples of faith James mentioned were Abraham and his son Isaac, and we looked at both of those last week um, in our amazing faith uh, sermon. Now, this week, we're going to look at the third example, which is Rahab the harlot. Now, unlike Abraham and Isaac, uh, she was raised in a pagan nation. She wasn't raised as a Jew. She was raised in a pagan nation, and she had pagan beliefs. So today we'll take a close look at Rahab. Um, she's the third example of faith that James mentioned. And really what he's trying to show us is, is the living faith, how their faith was alive. It didn't just exist, it was alive. Um, but to accurately explain you know, Rahab's faith, we're going to have to talk a lot about Joshua too. So just so I'm just going to warn you. All right. Now, Rahab was really an unlikely person to be an example of faith. First of all, because of her profession, right? She was a prostitute. Uh, and second of all, because of her pagan beliefs. So I titled today's message, An Unlikely Living Faith, uh, and so today we're going to see how, uh, if you just are willing to surrender to your faith, how God can use anyone powerfully. So let's jump right in. Now, after, let me give you a time frame here. I can't read all this, so I'll, I'll fill in the, the spots where I, I don't read, but after Moses died, Joshua became Israel's leader, and God quickly put him to work. He didn't give him much of a, of a honeymoon period. Look at this, Joshua 1.1 through verse 3. Now it came about after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' servant, saying, Moses, my servant is dead. Now therefore arise, cross this Jordan, you and all this people, uh, to the land which I am giving to them, to the sons of Israel. Every place, listen to this, every place on which the sole of your foot treads, I have given it to you just as I spoke to Moses. So, Basically, God wanted Joshua to start claiming all the land that God had promised to Moses for Israel. Now, this was starting with Jericho. Okay, so as soon as they crossed the Jordan, they were going to have to deal with their first city that they would have to try to conquer. And that city was called Jericho, and it was a fortified city. And it was fortified by these two huge walls that completely surrounded it, big walls. Now, to the average person, you would see that at that time and say, okay, that's impenetrable. Nobody Nobody can get through that. Right? And a lot of archaeologists have researched that ancient city of Jericho, and what they found is really neat. And you're going to see that archaeology and science always line up with God. But um, they found a lot of cool stuff out. That the city really wasn't that big. I mean, what, comparatively to our cities, it just wasn't that big. 
uh, it was around 430,000 square feet. Now, that sounds like a lot, but that's just a hair under 10 acres. 9.87 acres is how big that city was, right? And the two walls that surrounded the city, there were two, an outer and an inner wall, uh, and they were made of stone. Now, the amount of land wasn't as impressive as those two walls were because they were really impressive. Now, those archaeologists found that, uh, that the inner wall was 12 foot thick, 12 foot thick, and the outer wall was 6 foot thick, and both of them were 30 feet high. So these weren't like, you know, picket fences around this place. These were huge walls. Uh, and the walls of Jericho were actually so big that people were building their houses on those walls, on top of those walls. That's how, that's how big those walls were. But, you know, thankfully, none of that intimidated Joshua. None of it, because he was just determined to do what God told him to do. God gave him instructions, and he wanted to follow him. So Jericho was built on land that God had promised to Israel, and all he knew was, that's our land. And God wants me to take it, and I'm going to take it. And God not only told him to take it, he told him he would be successful. If you look at Joshua 1, 5, and 6, he says, No man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. I will not fail you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall give this people possession of the land which I swore to their fathers to give to them. So Joshua hears this, and his faith and, and his desire to lead were empowered by those words. If you look at what was said in verses 5 and 6, those are very empowering words, right? And he knew that if God said he could take that city, then he would take it. He knew that. And that's all he needed to know. Now, the size of Jericho's walls or the size of its army just didn't matter. None of that mattered because he knew that God was going to be with him, right? And there's one thing God told Joshua in verse 3, and I think it's really easy to miss. And I, and I like the way the ESV says this. Uh, Joshua 1.3 says, uh, Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. Okay, now, God promised Moses that he'd give Israel a large portion of land for they, so they could set up their kingdom that he had promised them, right? Now, that large portion of land is commonly referred to as the promised land. How many people have heard of that, the promised land? Okay, now, here's the thing, though. The promised land was based on a, uh, on a, on a conditional promise. It was based on a conditional promise, and the condition it was based on was obedience, right? It wasn't something they just got, had, were just going to have given to them. It was based on obedience. That's how God set this whole uh, promise up. So God told Joshua, he said, any place that the soles of your feet tread upon would be yours. That's what he told him. So to possess the promised land, Joshua had to do something. He had to claim that promise. God just wasn't going to hand it to him. Joshua actually had to go and get it. He had, to, he had to believe what God said, and it's not enough just to believe it. He had to act on it, right? He had to act on it. He had to get off his blessed assurance and go win that land. That's what he needed. So it's not like people think having faith, there should be evidence of that faith because it should empower you to do things. It should empower you to move and to act. And that's exactly what God was saying. Listen, wherever you set the soles of your feet, he was saying, get up and go take it. I'm not going to bring it and give it to you. We live in a society now where we're always looking for something to be given to us. Back then, he's saying, listen, I'll bless you, but I want you to do something. I want you to move on your faith, right? And today, God still requires obedience as a condition of our blessings. It really hasn't changed the way he blesses people. But the promise God made to New Testament believers is a little different because it wasn't about land, and it wasn't about the kingdom per se. It was, it's a spiritual promise. 
And that spiritual promise is basically if you obey him, and if you let your faith turn into action, then God will bless us. Now, I love what Jesus said in Luke's gospel about how obedience leads to blessing. Listen to this, uh, Luke eleven, twenty-seven and 28. It says, while Jesus was saying these things, one of the women in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. But he said, on the contrary, blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. I love that. He said, those who hear the word of God and observe it. Now, remember, James talked about hearers and doers. This is Jesus talking about that. So that's why James wrote this letter in the first place to these Jewish believers, these Jewish converts. He wanted them to understand that there's a difference between having a living and a dead faith. A living faith is a faith that's actually moved to action, and a dead faith isn't, right? And just to be honest with you, only a living faith will deliver God's blessings. That's just the only way it happens. Believing what God told you to do isn't enough. You have to do what God told you to do. I really wish believers today would allow God's word to empower them the way Joshua did. All God had to do was say it, and Joshua believed it, right? I just, I love that, because Joshua saw that obstacle as no problem, because God promised him he could have it. Now, we all have obstacles in front of us, and sometimes they seem insurmountable. How many times have you had a problem, whether it be financial, whether it be, you know, whether it be with your health or relationships, and you just look at it and you say, gosh, there's no, there's no solution here. God has promised you a solution. You just have to know what that solution is, know what his promise is, and you have to be able to step out on that. Listen, if God promised the ability to overcome obstacles, then you can. And he did make that promise to us. Listen to this, Romans 8, 30 and 31. He says, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, what? Say that like you're not asleep. If God, were, if God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? And here's a favorite, Philippians 4.13. I can do what? All things through him or through Christ who strengthens me. So no matter, no matter how difficult what you're facing seems, you have to ask yourself, is this too tough for God? Is this too big for God? Because if you trust God, you're going to come out on top, I promise you. Right? And that includes sickness, that includes financial and relationship struggles, doesn't matter what it is. I mean, addictions, that's just to name a few, regardless of the problem or how big it seems. God's bigger, and God can get us through it if we trust him. You know, the thing that gets me is a lot of times when we have those problems, we don't pray until we've tried ten ways to fix it ourselves. You notice that? And then it's ten times worse than it was when we first started because we make a mess of it. Right? And I just... I just wish that people would realize God should be our first option, not our last option. And you see the people like Joshua who believe that and how God powerfully blessed them. Now, uh, I think like Joshua, you have to trust the promises. You can't just know them. You have to trust them enough to let them to make you move, to have feet to your faith. Because people who don't act on the promises of God are doomed to spiritual mediocrity. But the people who step out on God's faith, they're the ones who will see victory and the amazing things God actually wants us to have. You just have to ask yourself, do I want to be the person that always reads about somebody else experiencing his greatness? Or do I want to be the one that experiences his greatness? You just got to ask yourself that. Right? Now, it's not enough just to, you know, read it. You have to believe it. Now, Joshua 2.1. It says, Then Joshua the son of Nun sent two men as spies from Shittim, saying, uh, go view the land, especially Jericho. So they went and came to, into the house of a harlot whose name was Rahab and lodged there. 
Okay, now, because Joshua believed God's promise, as soon as God tells him to take Jericho, he immediately starts planning his attack. Didn't even question it. And his first order of business was to do some recon. He wanted to know what he was up against so he could make a battle plan. So he sends two spies in. And when the spies get to Jericho, they, they lodged and they stopped at the house of Rahab, who was a prostitute, and they lodged there. Now, people always ask me, why did they stop here first? <laughs> I don't know. You know, maybe because, you know, it's a place that they wouldn't think they'd be looked for. I don't know, but that's where they stopped, right? We're not even going to get into that. But here's the thing. Being a small town, and it was a small town, it didn't take long for the word to get out that, hey, Israel sent some spies in here. And you're talking, you live in a city less than 10 acres, it's probably hard to hide much, you know, especially when there's these huge walls looking down on everything that goes on. So it didn't take long, and they knew he was there. Joshua, look at this, verses 2 through 4. It said, it was told the king of Jericho, saying, Behold, men from the sons of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. And the king of Jericho sent word to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, uh, who have entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and had hidden them. And she said, yes, these men came to me, but I, don't know, or I did not know where they were from. So when the king finds out about these two men that Joshua sent in, he immediately wants to find them. I mean, he immediately wants to find them. So he sends his soldiers out to a place, you know, that was well known. And that was Rahab's place, and she was a harlot. Now, it sounds like it may have also, she may have also had some kind of hotel there. I don't know. I'm not going to speculate. But that's where he sent his men to check. He wanted to make sure, you know, that they were there. Now, <laughs> one of those things that people say, well, why did he check there first? I've been asked that all the time. Why didn't he check other places? Well, it was really common back in that day when men would be traveling and they would stop in a city. Their first stop sometimes... <laughs> I mean, we're to see prostitutes, and that's all I got to say about that, <laughs> you know? So that was, that was not uncommon, and he, you know, so he probably assumed that's where they stopped, first of all, and then I'm sure that, I'm sure he'd already heard uh, that they were there also, but, you know, it made sense that he would, he would check that, you know, first. But it's kind of funny, Rahab didn't want those men to get, in, to get taken into custody. She didn't want that, so she hit him, and she's really, really good. Because when they come to her, they say, have those men been here? Well, she knew someone probably saw them there. She knew that. So she goes, well, yeah, they were here. I didn't know where they were from, though. I mean, they were here. And I love what she says next. She says, now, they're gone. They've already left. And, you know, here's how long ago they left. Maybe if you go out and start looking for them right now, you might get lucky and catch them. You know what I mean, she was really good. I mean, she, and she, got, she put it out there. But the question people always ask is, why would a pagan prostitute want to protect two foreigners? And especially knowing that her life was at risk just for doing that. And we'll answer that in verses 7 through 14. We'll find that answer. But first, always remember something. God allows us to face obstacles for two reasons. He allows it. There's really two important reasons. First of all, when we face obstacles and overcome them through faith, it grows our faith. I mean, that's the first one. How many people in here have ever, has ever been brought through something that seemed impossible, and afterwards your faith and confidence just went up? Anybody been there before? When God delivers you, the next time you face a problem, it's just not as scary as the first time, right? So that's the first reason he allows us to face uh, obstacles. But the second reason is he does it so that people who witness him working through us will be drawn to him. There's two reasons. Now, 
here's the thing you have to remember. Make no mistake, God loved the people of Jericho as much as he loved the children of Israel. But the difference was the people of Jericho didn't believe in him. They had totally rejected him, and they had uh, worshipped idol gods. So at that time, only Israel was believing in the one true God, and that's why they were blessed. I think people think that God hated everybody except those people because of their ethnicity, and it had nothing to do with it. Abraham was the father of faith in Israel, and he believed God, and it was credited to him as righteous. And the reason they were blessed is because they believed God. It wasn't because God hated the other people. The other people just refused to believe, right? But here's the thing you have to remember about God, and when you look at these stories, you'll see it so many times. When God brings his wrath, he always brings his grace also. He always brings his grace. God is grace. You can't separate the two. And it's that grace and mercy that's going to change Rahab's life forever. Let's look at this. Joshua 2, 7 through 14. It says, So the men pursued them on the road uh, to Jordan, to the fords. And as soon as those who were pursuing them had gone out, she, uh, they shut the gate. Now before they lay down, she came up to them on the roof, this is the two spies, and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that the terror of you has fallen on us. Listen to that. The terror of you has fallen on us. And that... All the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. And, that you did, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites uh, who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. When we heard it, listen to this, our hearts melted and no courage remained in any man uh, any longer because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven, uh, in heaven above and on earth beneath. Now, therefore, please swear to me by the Lord, since I have dealt kindly with you, that you also will deal kindly with my father's household and give me a pledge of truth. And spare my father and my mother and my brothers and my sisters with all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. So the men said to her, our lives for yours, if you do not tell this business of ours, and it shall come about that when the Lord gives us the land that we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. So Rahab said they had all heard about the things that God had been doing through Israel. They'd heard about, they knew about it. They'd heard about the crossing of the Red Sea, how God parted the waters and they walked through on dry land. They'd heard about that, right? They had heard about all these battles that they shouldn't have won that they were winning. And they knew that, there was, that God was winning these battles for them. They'd heard about all those things. And hearing those things actually terrified Jericho. Terrified him, especially Rahab. And Rahab believed that, that Israel's God was powerful, so much so that she believed in him. I love what it says here, because she literally believed in him. And because she believed in him, she's like, you're going to win if you come in here. If you attack us, you're going to win. I don't care how big our walls are. So just make me a promise, when you attack, have mercy on me and my family. Spare us because I was kind to you. I hid you from them. So spare us. Uh, and they made a deal with her. But listen to this. You can tell that she literally, truly, and biblically believed. If you look at Joshua 2.11a, it says, For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. She completely believed. She was saying, I no longer believe in the pagan roots. I think that your God is the true God. That's the God I want to serve. She believed at this point. And everything that happens after her belief was her putting feet to her faith, was showing that she had living faith. 
She actually believed. And Joshua's spies found out something a lot of believers today seem to forget. And that is when we live for and when we obey God, he takes care of all the unknowns for us. We don't have to have all the answers. He does. And Joshua found this out when he went into this house. He finds this out. Because, listen, all the children of Israel knew about Jericho was that it was a city that was heavily fortified. That's all they knew about it. And, I mean, they probably were a little intimidated by that. They didn't know what was going on in there, so they probably, their imaginations probably took over. They could have had this massive army hidden behind those walls or in those walls, right? They could have had a huge cache of weapons and chariots. They didn't know. All they knew was it was a big fortified city, and you can bet the enemy was whispering fears and doubts in their ears. You can bet he was doing that, right? And I don't know if you've ever experienced that, but when you're getting ready to step out for God, he's always whispering in your ear stuff, trying to discourage you. You can bet that's what was going on here. Right? He was probably saying things like, listen, you do know if you follow this crazy guy, Joshua, that they're probably going to be on top of that 30-foot wall just picking us off one by one with arrows. And you need to think this through before you follow this guy. Or he's probably saying, listen, this is a suicide mission. I think Joshua's lost his mind. I think the pressure of trying to be like Moses has made him lose his mind. You can't go in there. You're going to die. These are the things that were probably being whispered in their ears. Right? And it's so much still happens today. It so much happens to us. Because have you ever thought, I wonder how many blessings we have been robbed from because the devil has whispered fear and doubt in our ears and kept us from doing what God told us to do. I, just, I would love to know how many times we have missed out on a major blessing because we listened to the negative stuff that the enemy was whispering in our ear rather than trusting the promise of God. And I will give you some examples, some of the things he whispers to us, and maybe you've experienced some of these. He says things like, listen, you can't get involved in that ministry at church. You just don't know enough. I've had people tell me that, well, I've been wanting to do this for years, but I just was afraid that, you know, I was, I was underqualified. That's the enemy whispering in your ear. If God puts something on your heart, you should do it. The Bible says the exact opposite. The Bible says if you have a gift, use it. The Bible doesn't say if you have a gift, hone it. For years until you're perfect at it, then use it. He says, if you have a gift, use it. Look at this, 1 Peter 4, starting in verse 10. says, as each one of you has received a special gift, what? Employ it. That means get busy. Use it. Employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. How about this one? I know you guys probably had this whisper in here at one time or another. You don't have to go to church to be a Christian. How many people have heard that? Right. You don't have to go to church to be a Christian. Besides, they're all a bunch of clicky hypocrites anyway. How many people have heard churches are full of clicks? Raise your hand. You know what? They are. How many people have heard that churches are full of hypocrites? Raise your hand. You know what? They are. But there are hypocrites everywhere. Everywhere. Right? So you have to realize something. The Bible tells us that church isn't about the other people around you. It's about learning how to know and serve God better. It's not about the other people around you. Right? That's not what it's about. Listen to this, Hebrews 10, 23. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And listen to this. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to, to love and good deeds. So he's saying, how do you stimulate one another to love and good deeds? Not forsaking our assembling together. That assembling together is where we get the word church from. Uh, as it is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Listen, there are hypocrites and cliques everywhere, but for some reason it doesn't bother you as much. 
There are hypocrites and there are cliques at work, aren't there? But you still go to work, don't you? You don't say, I'm not going to work because there's hypocrites there. You go to work anyway. You're like, I can deal with it, right? There are, there's probably hypocrites and cliques within your own family, right? Point at them. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Yet you still go to your family reunions. You still love them, right? There are hypocrites at the country club that you belong to. Doesn't stop you from golfing, does it? But why is it that if we find that in a church, we're like, oh, I'm not going back to church. Well, listen, if you're waiting for a church that doesn't have any hypocrites and doesn't have any cliques, you are never going to find it. It doesn't exist. When I hear people say that, you know what I think immediately? They're listening to the voice whispering in their ear. They're listening to that. They are listening to that, and the enemy is just laughing because he's fooled them. Right? Here's another one. Don't give that church your money. You may not have enough for yourself when it's all said and done. <laughs> I've had this discussion a million times. But the Bible says that those who support God's ministries always have plenty. We don't read that. Look at this, 2 Corinthians 9, 6. It says, Now this I say, he who sows sparingly will also what? Reap sparingly. And he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. I guarantee you when Dave goes out to plant, he doesn't plant half of his land and hope for all of it to come up. Right? He's got to put it out there if he wants to get it back. Right? Same thing. Right? Each one of us must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. That's why we don't put a basket under your nose. We, tr we just let it be between you and God. Verse 8. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an what? An abundance for every good deed. These are all the kind of things that the enemy whispers in our ear that I see people falling for every day. And it's just amazing that we haven't picked up on that. On that yet. Now, now back on our main text, Joshua, Joshua's spies found out that the fear and doubt that was whispered in their ears was just a lie that the devil used to distract them. He found that out. The people of Jericho were the ones that were afraid. They were probably so intimidated on the outside thinking that they were going to go up against these mighty, confident warriors, and it said that their hearts melted within them in Jericho. They were terrified. Right Now listen to this, as, as uh, Rahab lowered the spies down the wall, because she lived on that wall also, they agreed to spare her house. But there were conditions right, that she had to meet, or the deal would be off. Listen to this, verses 15, starting in verse 15, it says, Then she let down by a rope through a window, for her house was on a city wall, uh, so that she was living on the wall. She said to them, Go to the hill country, so that the pursuers will not happen upon you. And hide yourself there for three days until the pursuers return. Then afterward, you may go on your way. The men said to her, We shall be free from this oath to you, uh, which you have made us swear, unless, listen to this, unless when we come into the land, you tie this cord of scarlet thread in the window through which you let us down. And gather to yourself into the house your father and your mother and your brother and all your father's household. And it shall come about that anyone who goes out of those doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we shall be free. But anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our heads uh, if a hand is laid on him. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be free from the oath from which you have made us swear. She said, according to your words, so be it. So she sent them away, and they departed, and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. Now you see, when you read about 
Rahab, you can see why James chose her as a great example of faith. You can just see that. Look at Hebrews 11.31. It says, By faith, Rahab the harlot did not perish along with those who were disobedient after she welcomed the spies in peace. See, she saw evidence of a higher power at work when she saw Israel. And despite her pagan roots, she believed in that higher power. She believed in it. Rahab knew what the world is still hoping we forget, right? The world is still hoping we forget. You don't have to see God to see the evidence of his existence and of his sovereignty. It's all around you. It's all around you. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the convictions of things what? Not seen. Now, honestly, I think it's hypocritical for people to say they won't believe in God if they can't see him. I think that's so hypocritical. I don't believe in anything I can't see. They believe in things they can't see all the time, right? Like love. You can't see that. You can see the results of it. You can't see it. You can't see desire. You can see the results of it. You can't see passion. You can see the results of that. You can't see the wind, but you can see the results of it. How many people check the pilot's license when you get on a plane? You ever think about that? You've never met that guy or woman. They might be absolutely hammered up there. You don't know. They might be, you know, they might be on something. They may have been on a three-day binge. You don't know. You just get on the plane and trust without ever meeting or seeing that pilot that he's going to get you there safely. It's just so hypocritical to say we won't believe in something until we see it. We believe in things we don't see based on the evidence of their existence. Well, the evidence of God's existence is all around us, and Rahab saw it. And she said, I'm not going to deny it. That is the work of an almighty God, and she believed in it. So let's move on and see how she's rewarded for her faith. So finally, this time come to execute this plan. Uh, so Joshua 6, 1 through 5. Now Jericho was tightly shut because of the sons of Israel. That means they were afraid, so they locked it down. Uh, no one went out, and no one came in. The Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and the valiant warriors. You shall march around the city, all the men of war, circling the city once. You shall do so for six days. Also, seven priests shall carry seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. Then on the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. It shall be that when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, and when you hear the sound of the trumpet, all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and people will go up uh, every man straight ahead. Now, People often ask me, why did God make them take the city that way? Because let's be honest, if you're one of those people who were nervous about fighting it, if Joshua came to you and said, God gave me the answer, you're like, great, did he give us horses, did he give us chariots, did he give us weapons? No, no, no. He said to take some priests and give them some horns, and to put them in front of our army, and we're supposed to march around the city every day. And when we're done, we blow the horns. And they're going... Is there, is there more to that plan? Yeah, on the seventh day, we're going to march around the city seven times. Sounds like track practice, right? And then when we're done, we're going to blow the horn and the walls are just going to fall down. How many of you would go sign me up? Let's be honest. There had to be a lot of faith to, to go out there and do that. You're like, and that's your plan. Your plan is to walk around the city every day, walk around it seven times the last day, when they play their trombones, the walls are going to fall down after we shout. 
That had to be tough for him. I'm not going to lie. That, that had to be tough for him. And people always ask me, why did he want them to defeat Jericho in such a strange way? And the reason is simple. God needed Israel to know who it was that fights for them. They needed to know if they were going to take all those land that it wasn't about them. It wasn't about what they could do. They needed to know that. They needed to know that God is the one that goes ahead of them, right? And when God says go, understand that means he's going with you. And this was his way of teaching them. God will never send you to do something alone because he is always with you. And he wanted them to understand that. He needed them to understand that. He wanted them to know, listen, taking back the promised land isn't about how powerful you are. It's about how powerful I am. Listen, when God has given you something that seems impossible, it probably is to you. But it's not to him. And maybe he wants to show you something about how he cares for you by trusting him and allowing him to show his power. That's exactly what he was doing here. This plan was perfect if they just believed it, right? So they did exactly what God said. Look at this, Joshua 16, 15, or 6, 15. Then on the seventh day, they rose early, and at the dawning of the day, they marched around the city in the same manner seven times. So this is the seventh day. They'd already done the one a day, the one lap a day. Uh, only on that day, they marched around the city seven times. Uh, at the seventh time, when the priests blew the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. The city, the city shall be under a ban. Uh, it and all that is in it belongs to the Lord. Only Rahab the harlot and all who are with her in the house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. So, <laughs> think about this. I bet you right up to the shout, they still thought he was nuts. What do you want to bet? They're walking around it, dead tired, at the end, and they're like, okay, we're going to shout, then let's run. That's probably what they were thinking. But the walls came down, and God gave them that city. And I think this is so ironic because a one-time pagan and prostitute was totally transformed just by believing and acting on that faith. Living faith is what transformed this woman. This is why James mentioned her. Because she wasn't anything to be talked about. She was kind of the dredge of humanity at that time, right? But she saw the evidence of God, believed it, acted on it. And because of that, not only was she saved from the destruction Israel was going to bring, she was saved eternally. And more than that, she is one of the women in the lineage of Jesus Christ. She is in his lineage. You know what that always makes me think of? We judge people all the time. Now, we don't like to admit it, but we do. And when you judge somebody because of their life or the, tr the trouble they have or the addictions or the struggles they have, realize this. It was the people that no one thought could do anything that God used the most powerfully. Always has been. And this woman was a prostitute and a pagan. And from her, in her lineage, in her family, would come the Savior of the world, simply because she was willing to put her faith into action. I think that is so, so powerful. Listen, I want to leave you with one thought. We always act like, when we read these miracles in the Bible, that that was then. And I know I'm not going to make you raise your hands, but most of you probably don't think God would part the water for you. Most of you probably don't think that, you know, that God will deliver you in battle uh, without, you know, lifting a sword, right? You just, it's hard for us because we think, yeah, God did that back then. He doesn't do that now. Listen, 
God has not run out of miracles. I think he's just running out of people with enough faith to believe in him. That's what I think is going on. And if you learn to have living faith, not just read what God says, not just believe what God says, but read it, believe it, and act on it, you might be the person he brings the next great miracle into this world by. People might be reading about you someday. Because he still does those miracles. If I had time, I'd tell you about many of them. We're just falling short of people who believe he can. Because that's one of the conditions. You want to see God move powerfully after you've believed? Have living faith. You'll see him move powerfully. I'm going to go ahead and stop there. We'll pick up next week back in James. If you would, please bow your heads. If this is your first time, we always like to give an invitation. Now, I don't do these pressuresome altar calls. I just don't do that. I'm just making an invitation. And if you'd like me to pray for you, if you're not sure where you stand or you just need prayer, I don't judge, but I do pray for you. Just make eye contact and put your head right back down. Bless those people. Bless those people. I'm going to be praying for you. If you're listening or watching online, God knows your heart. I'll be praying for you too. But believers, when I read this, I always pray for us. And and when I read this, I just think, gosh, look how powerful these people were because they trusted God. They were changing their entire world simply by faith. Imagine if we would do that now. We're great at complaining about everything that's wrong. We're really bad about trusting God to get us through it. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for your love and your mercy and your grace, especially your grace. God, none of us are good enough to get to heaven. We can't do good works without you. We fall short every day. But your love for us is so strong that it's more powerful than our weakness. And if we believe, you've promised to give us eternal life. If there's someone who hasn't believed, whether they be among us or listening or watching, no doubt they have so much religion piled up in their head and so many things that are hindering them. Just remove all that. And remind them that Jesus came and died innocently so that all we would have to do is believe. There was a great work done to pay for the eternal life we enjoy, but we didn't do it. Give them the faith to believe in what he did and your word guarantees they'll have eternal life. And if they make that decision, I pray they contact us. But God, for those of us who are believers, we are so good at complaining. We are so good at being negative, taking sides, dividing. God, remind us that all the great things that happened throughout the scripture happened because people trusted you with their problems. They didn't sit and whine. They trusted you about with them. And they were willing to step out and do what you told them. God, bless us to be the kind of Christians that can change our world, that have the faith to move mountains and the faith that brings down walls. And if we can do that, God, we know we can start seeing things change. We just thank you, God, for all that you do. Pray that you go with us as we leave here. And if you don't return before we meet again, let us come together one more time and give you all the praise, honor, and glory you're so worthy of. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.